0: Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and unpack it into relatable concepts. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and today we're talking about trigger finger, decor veins, tendinitis, and ganglion. You may have heard about them, but what causes them and why are they grouped together here? And most importantly, what could be done to make them better? Remember, that this podcast reflects my experience and my opinion. It is not intended to give formal medical advice, but instead you can use it to gain insight, whether you are needing a procedure or you're just curious. So settle in for a listen and enjoy. Yes, let's hear those hand and arm or upper extremity ailments again. Trigger finger, de syndrome, tendinitis, and even ganglion cyst. We'll discuss each individually, but what do they all have in common? Well, they can all develop as a result of inflammation in some form or fashion. Given that, let me first say a word or two about inflammation and how it affects the hand anatomy. Understanding a couple of concepts here will be very helpful as we go on to discuss these hand problems further. The first concept is that inflammation can either be due to injury, or due to a systemic problem. Now, injury could refer to an accident that's involving the hand or the arm, but it could also be interpreted as something that adds up over a long period of time, such as repetitive strain or overuse. A systemic problem, however, would be some type of overall disease that produces inflammation throughout multiple body parts, including the hand and arm. An autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis could be one example of this. And the second concept is that inflammation can be acute or chronic. Acute generally means a relatively sudden onset and usually short lived nature. After the inflammation has resolved, usually tissues go back to normal, though not always. And by tissues, I'm using a collective term for all of the internal components that make up a body part, in this case, the tissues inside the hand, etc. If inflammation is chronic, however, rather than acute, then it is ongoing or long-standing. And if that's the case, over time, some changes in the tissues can start to develop, which may or may not ever go back to the way they were. This can leave some lingering problems that may have to be addressed. And it's that chronic inflammation, or sometimes just the after effects, that are the instigators of the hand problems we want to talk about today. So what does that chronic inflammation do to the upper extremity? To explain that, I must next briefly tell you some key points about the anatomy of the hand. Once again, as you may recall me mentioning during the last episode, number 26, about carpal tunnel syndrome and nerve compression, the anatomy of the hand is beautifully intricate and efficient and really quite remarkable once you start to study it. But that doesn't mean these parts and components can't get into trouble. The hand moves largely by a system of pulleys and levers with tendons that then thread through the pulleys. I've had some patients colloquially refer to tendons as leaders, which is a fishing line term. To illustrate how motion works, let's examine a muscle, say, in the forearm. At one end, the muscle is attached to a bone near the elbow. The shape of the rest of the muscle, as it extends toward the hand and fingers, tapers down to connect to a tendon, which is a strong, thick, fibrous cord then the far end point of that tendon attaches to a different bone, in a finger. So when the muscle in the forearm contracts, it pulls on the tendon, which ultimately results in the finger bone moving. And that's actually how we would bend the finger, for example. We're contracting a muscle in the forearm, and the movement happens at the finger level because of the long tendon in between the muscle and the finger. By the way, this is why the part of our forearm that is closer to the elbow is wider than the part of the forearm that is near the wrist. The higher up part has more muscle present, and the lower part is mostly tendons. Well that example of the mechanics of movement sounds logical, but what about the pulleys? Where are they, and what purpose do they serve? The pulleys are strong loops of fibrous tissue which are located at various points along the finger, and similarly functioning structures are also found in the wrist. They are securely attached to bone, and tendons travel through these pulleys kind of like the loops on a fishing rod that the fishing line would travel through. The reason they are there is to keep the tendon snug up against the bone so the movement the tendon produces can be more efficient. Without the pulleys, if the muscle in the forearm contracts, the strong tendon would bowstring away from the hand and wrist at an angle since the skin of the wrist and palm alone could not hold it back. Now, not only will that look really weird, but the finger and wrist would not move as efficiently. So why is all this important to our talk today? Well, as you might imagine, those tendons pass through pulleys hundreds of times a day as we do our jobs or regular activities, which produces friction. The body, of course, has a natural way to counteract this friction by lining the sheath or tunnel the tendons travel in with a special tissue called synovium. And that synovium produces the synovial fluid that bathes the tendons. A similar concept occurs with lubrication fluid inside a joint. By the way, this slippery fluid has a consistency similar to raw egg white. That's why some people have postulated the word root ov in synovium may come from ovum, which is Latin for egg, but other scholars do not think that's accurate. Okay, so now let's return to the concept of chronic inflammation. Even though the tendon has its own lubrication system, there are limits to the wear and tear it can take. If there is too much movement without rest or in awkward positions, the protective tissue around the tendon gets overwhelmed and can start to become inflamed and swell. If this happens time after time, the normally thin tissue can become thick and bulky and may not be able to reverse itself, which makes it difficult to now pass through the pulleys since the pulleys have no give, they are not elastic. Now that creates even more friction. The swollen tendon may start to catch on a pulley and then it will take a lot of force to snap it through the pulley. And, aha! Now we have what's known as trigger finger. It may get so bad that the tendon stops gliding altogether and becomes stuck in or behind a pulley. So even if the muscle contracts, the tendon cannot move the finger. You might be able to use the other hand to manually force it to move, but that's pretty painful. So, now let's discuss trigger finger, named for the sudden catch or snap of tendon movement. The more correct medical name is actually stenosing tenosynovitis. Stenosing means narrowing, and tino refers to tendon, and synovitis is inflammation of the synovial tissue. Remember that any word root ending in "-itis", is referring to inflammation of that particular area. The location of triggering is usually near the first pulley of each finger or thumb, called the A1 pulley, and is located in the palm, close to where the finger meets the hand. I'm sure you already can imagine how overuse or repetitive activity can contribute to developing trigger finger, given our earlier discussion. But there are other ways it can develop, too. An accident or a crush injury could produce direct trauma to the tendon or sheath, making it swell and have difficulty gliding. Also, systemic diseases like diabetes and thyroid disease and rheumatoid arthritis can result in thickened tissues surrounding the tendons in general, leading to a tendency for trigger finger to develop. Symptoms could also be worse in the night or early morning after waking due to some stagnation of fluid in our tissues overnight as we are not moving. Okay, at this point, we've got a better idea of what can cause trigger finger, but how do we treat it? Well, we can come at it from either of two different directions. We can either decrease the swelling around the tendon so that it then glides freely without getting caught, or we can physically release or open the pulley surgically. So no matter how swollen the tendon gets in the future, it no longer catches on the pulley. Since the latter choice is surgical, we usually first try to reduce the swelling or inflammation around the tendon before resorting to surgery, even though the surgical procedure is usually a swift solution and actually has less downtime than many other procedures in hand surgery. But keep in mind that if a problem has been going on for a pretty long time, or it's caused by an overall systemic disease that is always going to be present, then non-surgical treatment is likely to fail. Conservative or non-surgical treatment focuses on reducing inflammation. So that would include things like taking anti-inflammatory medication, such as ibuprofen, modifying activities, resting in a splint, and even special hand therapy to reduce irritation around the tendon. If that doesn't resolve things, then a steroid injection right near the problem area can be quite beneficial. Again, the steroid is a very powerful anti-inflammatory substance and can shrink swelling around the tendon so that it can now glide through the pulley system freely. More than one steroid injection may be required over time, but too many can start to create new problems. Therefore, if things don't fully resolve with a couple of steroid injections, then surgery would be planned. And fortunately, surgical release or snipping this A1 pulley to open it up rarely results in any sort of functional loss for the patient. The procedure is an outpatient one, and can be done in the operating room at a surgery facility under regional or general anesthesia, or sometimes just in the office under local anesthetic, depending upon the preference of both the surgeon and the patient. The finger can be moved right away, and this is helpful, but no strenuous activity should be undertaken with the hand for at least a couple of weeks. Sutures or stitches typically come out at one to two weeks, again depending upon the surgeon's recommendation. Some people wonder if the problem can recur, and the answer is yes, if there is now constriction at the next pulley in line. And certainly adjacent fingers can develop some triggering related to the original source of inflammation as well. Now let's talk about a similar hand problem in concept, but involving a different region of the hand, and that's a problem called de Quervain syndrome, named after a Swiss surgeon in the late 1800s. It also involves a form of stenosing tenosynovitis, but it is located in the region of the back of the wrist, all the way over to the thumb side. In this area, a couple of tendons that help extend or raise the thumb have to travel in a narrow compartment and under a tight fibrous structure that kind of acts like a pulley itself. Again, there is a lubrication system here, but it can be overwhelmed as well. Activities that require a lot of gripping and lifting up can, over time, lead to Quervain's syndrome, where the friction around the tendon has resulted in inflammation and swelling, followed by difficulty moving inside its tunnel, then cyclical worsening, and pain is then produced by that. It's actually not uncommon to find this syndrome developing in new parents who lift their babies all day long. Because the area of pain is located very close to a place at the base of the thumb where arthritis can commonly be located, the source of pain must actually be distinguished from arthritis in order to make sure the correct diagnosis is indeed de Corvain syndrome. This is done by a special test on exam with a great name called Finkelstein's test. The Finkelstein's test involves grasping your thumb with your fingers of the same hand, then bending the wrist toward the pinky finger to stretch the base of the thumb area. This usually produces significant pain in patients who truly have de Corvain syndrome. And of course, an X-ray may be considered to screen for underlying arthritis as well. The treatment protocol for decorvain syndrome is actually pretty similar to that of trigger finger. Conservative treatment is tried first, including rest, splinting, anti inflammatory meds, etc. After that, steroid injection can be considered to shrink swelling around the tendon directly. And ultimately, surgical release of that ligamentous structure or pulley can be done as an attempt at a more permanent solution if needed. Generally, this procedure has very good success, and luckily, it's rare to have any functional deficit as a result of releasing this pulley-type structure, though there is always a risk of injuring or irritating a nearby sensory nerve branch, and therefore the surgeon treads carefully here. Postoperative care is usually similar to that of trigger finger, except I typically recommended a temporary splint for a week or so after de Quervain's release to allow some rest in the region of surgery and to help reduce risk of future bowstringing problems. Let's take a step back now to look at a bigger picture. We've been talking about trigger finger and de Courvain syndrome, which are types of stenosing tenosynovitis, but these are actually very specific examples of hand ailments that could fall under a much broader category of inflammation, just called tendonitis. Remember that itis means inflammation. Therefore, tendinitis means just what it sounds like, inflammation involving tendons. Though in this broader sense, the inflammation does not just have to involve areas where a tendon passes through a tunnel or under a pulley. Some examples in the upper extremity are at the wrist, where any number of tendons on either the front or the back of the wrist could be involved or inflamed. Also, a couple of different problems you may have heard colloquially referred to as tennis elbow and golfer's elbow are often considered to fall under the global category of tendonitis, though there are some technicalities about them which might categorize them somewhat differently, such as the involvement of ligaments rather than tendons. But for our purposes here, we'll include them in this discussion. Tennis elbow, also known as lateral epicondylitis, involves the forearm extensor muscles and where they attach along the outside of the elbow. These muscles connect to tendons that raise or extend the wrist and fingers from the back or top side. But you certainly don't have to play tennis to develop this problem. And in fact, most patients with lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow are not tennis players. Pain and tenderness are noted on the outside of the elbow and forearm, and the pain is aggravated by doing a lot of lifting of objects with the palm facing downward or towards the body's midline. And golfer's elbow, also known as medial epicondylitis, is usually just the opposite. It involves the forearm flexor muscles and their attachment to the inside of the elbow. These muscles attach to tendons that bend or flex the wrist and the fingers. And yes, you guessed it, you don't have to be a golfer to develop this problem. Ball throwing activities, rock climbing, weight training, or repeated forceful motions required for a job can all contribute to the development of this problem. I'm sure you will not be surprised to hear that the treatment of all of these other entities that could fall under the umbrella of the tendonitis label is generally similar to the previous stair-stepped approach to the treatment we've discussed already in terms of invasiveness. Again, starting with more conservative treatment, including rest, splinting, anti-inflammatories, maybe some physical therapy, and then progressing to steroid injection if needed. But there is a difference in that the surgery for these areas is, in my opinion, a little bit less successful than with some of the earlier things we've talked about. That may have something to do with the fact that these tendonitis-type problems can have quite varied and less specific anatomic causes, so they can be more difficult to treat definitively through surgical means. And for that reason, surgery is often held off as long as possible until absolutely everything else has been tried and has failed to produce any lasting results. Well, let's finish up this episode with a discussion about ganglion cysts. A cyst, by the way, is just another name for a fluid-filled knot or bump. One way ganglion cysts can occur is as the after-effect of inflammation this time involving joints rather than tendons, pulleys, ligaments, or muscles. And actually, in my experience, they tended to be more frequently seen than the previous hand problems we've been talking about. Ganglion cysts can develop near multiple joints of the body, though for our purposes here, we're going to focus on the upper extremity, and specifically the hand and wrist. They also happen to be the most common type of hand bump or mass we see. They're most often found on the wrist, especially the back of the wrist, though they can be seen overlying a tendon sheath in the palm. Remember, anywhere that has synovial fluid can develop a ganglion cyst. When found over the tendon sheath, of course it would be called a tendon sheath ganglion cyst. Additionally, ganglion cysts can develop on the back of the furthest joint or knuckle of a finger, where they can be also known as a mucous cyst. At that level, they usually come from some degenerative arthritis, manifested as a little bone spur in the joint that acts as an irritant, and there can be some characteristic grooving in the nail plate as a result. Now, no one can say definitively why ganglion cysts form, and some people seem to have just a genetic predisposition for them, especially when we see them in younger patients. But in my opinion and from my experience, most often the finding of a ganglion cyst reflects the after-effects of chronic inflammation, Stress on the joint and overuse, such as with work activities or even with athletic training like a gymnast with frequent weight-bearing on the wrist, could contribute to the development of a ganglion cyst, though certainly there can be some which develop after a more acute event with inflammation, such as from an accident. And again, some virtually seem to occur spontaneously. But if there is inflammation of a joint that is ongoing, such as with arthritis or with overuse then the synovial sac around the joint, which produces the lubricating synovial fluid to keep the joint gliding well, can become inflamed. This causes swelling, and then more fluid fills the sac as response to the irritation and inflammation. The more the fluid, the sac over time may stretch and develop a weak spot. What happens when you get a weak spot in a sac and fluid is under pressure inside it? Well, you start to get a bulge in that region. Think of the bulge that can form in a weak spot in a tire. Only the bulge we're talking about here stretches and develops into a ganglion cyst. Once that happens, it tends to act like it's a bit of a one-way valve, meaning the joint fluid or synovial fluid can leak into the forming cyst, but it has trouble getting back out. That nice, slippery fluid can start to turn thicker and more jelly-like inside the cyst as water is absorbed out into the surrounding tissues and the cyst contents become more dehydrated. That makes it even harder for synovial fluid to get back out of the ganglion and return to the joint. So it continues to increase in size over time, and may even rupture or pop on its own. In fact, one of the more traditional, non-medical ways you might have heard about treating a ganglion cyst is to smack it with a Bible or a book. If you can believe it, that recommendation is still bandied about even today, and frankly, it is not a good thing to do. Not only does it create a fair amount of soft tissue damage and bruising, but it may actually harm a nerve or fracture a bone. So, bottom line, don't do it. Well, should you worry about the ganglion cyst? No, they're not harmful per se, but people generally have them treated because they can be painful and they can be somewhat unsightly. And I think you get the idea by now, but generally, they are most often first treated conservatively, such as with splinting and anti-inflammatory medication, as well as cutting back on the activity that seems to be contributing to the development. These things can be helpful if the cyst has not been present for very long. But if it has been around for several months to years, more involved intervention is likely needed. And also, an x-ray could be considered to screen for any underlying arthritis or other bony problem which may be contributing to cyst formation. Cyst aspiration can be done, which means drawing the fluid out with a needle and syringe after numbing the skin, and that can be accomplished right in the office. But if the cyst has been present for a long time, it may be difficult to get the now thick fluid to come out through the needle and syringe. Plus, the fact is that with this method, the pouch is still left behind. So even if it is drained in the office, the body can still fill it back up again with fluid. A steroid injection can be given, and that would reduce inflammation and likely shrink the cyst, but at some point the steroid will wear off, and especially if the cyst has been present for a long time, it will probably come back. So again, for these long-standing cysts, or those that are resistant to improvement with conservative methods, surgical removal is typically the gold standard treatment. This is often done as an outpatient procedure with an open technique, though in the wrist, there are some surgeons who will attempt this through an arthroscope. For a mucous cyst in the finger, the surgeon is often careful to make sure that they remove any small bone spur present in addition to the cyst. Otherwise, the risk of recurrence of the cyst is much higher. With ganglion cysts in general, even with the best of treatment, there is still at least a 5% or higher risk of recurrence after surgical removal. It likely has to do with the underlying and ongoing reason why the cyst formed in the first place. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, but hopefully, you've learned what makes all of these hand problems different, yet realize the inflammation thread that connects them together. I certainly hope you don't have to experience any of these firsthand. Sorry, bad bun. But if you do, I trust that you will have a little bit better understanding of what's going on and the options for treatment. Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.